This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, February 21st, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Regime uncertainty is broadly the difficulty in believing that the law is the law. For businesses and individuals, such uncertainty makes it harder to plan. For the economy, it can be disastrous. Robert Higgs is a senior fellow in political economy at the Independent Institute and author of the classic Crisis and Leviathan, along with many other books. We spoke earlier this week about regime uncertainty, past and present. In a very general sense, what can we say about economic interventions and their costs and benefits? Well, I think we can say that there's always a presumption that uh, the free market uh, will uh, allow a process to take place which produces the greatest net benefits for the public in general. And uh, that doesn't mean that there's any kind of perfection about that process. It simply means that uh, so-called imperfections that economists might identify in it uh, are imperfections relative to a kind of ideal or a blackboard model of how an economy uh, would best operate. But that blackboard model is not the same thing as the real world. So uh, when it's used as the rationale for government intervention, very often those interventions do nothing more than make the market process itself operate more poorly in the service of consumers in general and the, and the general public. Interventions, at least within the United States, until very recently, broadly had the approval of Congress. That was, you had the president and Congress agreeing on something and then it was carried out. In more recent years, uh, this president, with respect to where he drops bombs and when, uh, with respect to uh, having a law become effective, specifically Obamacare, has largely ignored uh, law. What, is that, what does that mean specifically? Well, I, I think the, the tendency toward a, a greater degree of executive discretion is one that goes back a long way in our history. And in general, uh, the president in particular has uh, acted with more and more discretion uh, as a trend, not invariably, not every year compared to the preceding one, but as a trend, executive discretion uh, has tended to grow uh, probably for almost the, a century now. And on some occasions, uh, for example, in the early years of the Roosevelt administration, the 1930s, a lot of uh, executive discretion was employed, and some of it was struck down, actually, by uh, the courts at the time and uh, required reversals or passage of new legislation. Now, what we're seeing recently with Obama is another surge, as it were, uh, laid on top of this uh, upward trend in which uh, the president has uh, more or less ignored the terms of legislation, and particularly the um, uh, Obamacare legislation, which is an enormous bill full of all kinds of special provisions of all sorts. And, and so the president has taken it upon himself to, to exempt particular firms or organizations from compliance, to delay deadlines, to change the terms uh, uh, that people are expected to comply with and so forth. So there's a tremendous amount of discretion being exercised by the president, which would, on the face of it, appear to be simply defiance of the plain terms of the law. 
now, he'll, he will get away with this as long as <laughs> it's not effectively challenged uh, in the courts, and, and no one will effectively challenge it in the courts unless there's enough public outcry to, to stimulate challenges. But uh, right now, we're, we're seeing a lot of such discretion domestically. Now, if we look at the president's discretion in foreign affairs, uh, it's always been much greater. Uh, the president has always been in a position where e- even uh, in the absence of any authorization through uh, legislation, the president has been able to effect fait accompli. Uh, if the president takes some action to provoke a foreign power, uh, he can then create a pretext for responding uh uh, on his own initiative. And uh, no one has ever taken much objection to that historically. Now, it, it became so blatant and s- involved such huge uh, uh, defense activities in the post-World War II activity that more people have paid attention to it. But recently, uh, uh, as you mentioned, uh, President Obama has simply undertaken to decide for himself where to bomb, when to bomb, whom to bomb. Uh, And now, of course, he has this notorious kill list of people that uh, he and a handful of his advisors sit around and compile about people all over the world that they've simply decided to kill. Uh, That that sort of presidential discretion is is not, I would say, unprecedented because uh, in the past there's certainly been a number of people killed uh, abroad, especially uh, at the president's order. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it, it has usually been quite covert in the past. And now it is, in a sense, more openly acknowledged that the president simply claims the power to kill anybody he wants to kill, whether it be an American citizen or a foreigner. And, and that, I think, is a, another jump uh, in the level and seriousness of this kind of presidential discretion because it, it, it reeks of, of complete despotism, of an absence of control of any kind. And uh, I think a lot of people are now at pains to figure out what can be done to restrain this, this president from making himself the killer-in-chief of the world. You wrote recently that government in general – makes a mockery of the principal-agent relationship, uh, specifically with respect to the NSA. Could you explain that a little bit? Well, the whole theory of of, uh, our government and many other governments for that matter is that uh, the rulers are agents, that uh, they're not uh, simply divinely appointed or simply imposed on – hapless and helpless subjects, but they are somehow selected or appointed in a way that makes them accountable uh, in the way that in a principal-agent relationship, the principal is the the decision maker and the agent acts only on behalf of the principal with his approval and with accountability to him. Uh, We we talk about uh, consent of the governed. That's a phrase that goes back for centuries uh, as a way of uh, uh, purporting to show 
that uh, those of us who are subject to government dictates uh, have agreed to be subject. Uh, it's always been a kind of myth, uh, a kind of uh, rationale more than a reality. We, we can very rarely find any historical situation or set of events and we could point to and say, well, that was when people gave their consent to be ruled in a certain way. And even if they had, as Lysander Spooner pointed out long ago in the 19th century, uh, we didn't do it. The fact that two or three generations ago, or by this time, uh, eight or ten generations ago, somebody gave consent uh, to be ruled by a particular government or form of government, in no way should bind us. That's a that's a very bizarre way to think that people give their consent without doing anything, simply being born in a country. We somehow are supposed to have consented to be ruled by the people who have, have control of it politically. But, but nonetheless, that's the, 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 the ancient theory on which uh, uh, representative government operates. Now, now, recently, particularly with the re revelations about the scope of the NSA's uh, surveillance of everybody, of virtually every form of electronic communications and other government uh, departments exercising surveillance in other ways besides electronic surveillance, it's become very clear that uh, not only do government agents not act as our, our agents – they act as agents of their superiors in the state exclusively, and they act adverse to our interests and without our permission and indeed against our vociferous protest. But they don't really give a damn whether we like it or not. They've simply decided that they're going to watch every move we make, monitor every word we type on a, a keyboard, and if we don't like it, well, that's just tough. Well, uh, if that's the situation, and I think it is, uh, then the whole idea of representative government is obviously a mockery. Uh, the American people at large did not ask to be spied on as they are now being spied on, and yet they seem powerless to stop it uh, because the people who have any political clout in our system are, for the most part, fine with this. Uh, they don't seem to be really worried about it. They keep repeating the same lame excuses for doing it about terrorist threats, and, uh, and they just go merrily along their way. But uh, I don't think any serious person could, could really excuse what's uh, taking place and represent it to be an aspect of a, a sound principal-agent relationship between the, the ruled and the ruler's. As a related matter, you wrote uh, not long ago that all government policies in the long run are successes, which of course is on its face a ridiculous statement. Yes. But what do you mean by that? I mean that every government policy has a, a, an announced purpose. It purports to do this, that, or something else. Uh, but very rarely is that the real reason it's being done. Uh, if we take, for example, uh, Obamacare, that purports to be a measure that serves the purpose of uh, giving uh, health care insurance to, to many people who currently lack that. 
but if you look at how it operates and in the terms of the legislation, it's perfectly obvious that this legislation serves the interests of a variety of powerful special interests, insurance companies and government uh, bureaucrats and uh, various others, uh, including even the IRS, which will be now in charge of enforcing and collecting the fines levied against people who don't purchase this insurance as the law requires. So uh, a lot of people are going to benefit from uh, the enforcement of the Obamacare legislation, but uh, the benefits that are purported to be provided are at best an excuse for what is actually being done. Uh, and very often when, when we see any big complex statute, we can be absolutely certain that it's not serving the intended purpose because the intended purpose could be served usually in a law that only took two or three pages instead of 1,500 or 2,000 pages. And if one plows through all these special provisions, what he's seeing uh, are, are the actual beneficiaries of these laws. Uh, so I, I think people, people don't quite understand this, at least not many people do. Uh, certainly the insiders have always understood it. But they're the ones who write these laws for their own purposes. And therefore, they're successful. A absolutely. What, what I mean by government policies always working in the long run is that when they do not serve the interests of the special interests who create them and enforce them, then they're changed. People who have the power to make these laws uh, if, if they find the laws don't serve their purposes, they, uh, they overturn them, amend them. They do something to make them serve their purposes. The government is not here to serve the public. The government is here to serve the people who have the power to influence what the government does. A lot of your uh, area of specialty and research is in the 1930s and 40s. Mm -hmm. What do people not understand about uh, how that government under uh, Frederick, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, how that functioned. What do people not understand about the, the, the sort of the hard facts about how that government well, functioned? Well, one, one of the things that's not well understood by the general public is, is this very factor we've been talking about. <clears throat> the, 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 the New Deal uh, pa passed a lot of big le legislation that purported to serve some great public interest. But in every case, these, these enactments were aimed at serving particular interests, special interests, people who had political power. And uh, if we look at the big uh, New Deal measures like the Agricultural Adjustment Act, it's clearly aimed at benefiting farmers at, at the expense of the general public by raising prices of farm commodities at a time when many people were struggling to even buy food to feed their families. Here's a law that aims to make the cost of living much more expensive for everybody. Uh, if we look at the National Industrial Recovery Act, it cartelized all the, the industries in the country, uh, practically uh, more than 700 separate so-called codes of fair competition were 
were approved by the government before the measure was overturned by the Supreme Court in 1935. But uh, this is obviously another scheme uh, put together industry by industry to suppress competition, to raise prices, and thereby to raise profits for the firms operating in these individual interests industries at the expense of the consuming public in every case. So, so uh, you know, the, the law was described as uh, aimed at getting the country out of the depression. That was its public rationale. But uh, the means of doing so uh, boiled down to reducing supply brought to the market in more than 700 industries. In other words, you're going to get the country out of a situation where too little is being produced by producing even less. And it was absurd. Uh, And some people at the time realized it was absurd, but it had massive support by industrial interests. And then labor unions were bought off by being brought into the terms of the enactment and given a new government support for their organization of unorganized workers. And, and so they bought into the system as well. When it was overturned, then the individual industries went back to less sweeping enactments to serve their interests in, in, in one industry after another, whether it was uh, petroleum industry or the coal mining industry or or some other. And similarly with the Agricultural Act after it was struck down by the Supreme Court. New legislation was enacted to, again, serve the interests of farmers at the expense of the general public. So uh, the the New Deal was not, in any sense, uh, aimed at serving the public. Every element of it was aimed at serving some special interest. And that's how these great Comprehensive bills were put together. That's how tax legislation was enacted. That, that's how a whole host of uh, actions were taken. And, 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 and to some extent, that same thing happened again during the war when Roosevelt was president. Uh, at that time, the <clears throat> excuse in every case was, was that <clears throat> it was aimed at winning the war. But if we look at exactly uh, the, the actions that were taken, we see that special interest consideration did not come to a halt during World War II. Politics did not come to a halt during World War II. And, and so the government continued to respond to special interest pressures, although not to the same degree that it had during the 1930s. Uh, there were some cases, I think, where we could legitimately say the government did X, Y, or Z because it thought that would hasten winning the war. But nonetheless, I think people don't understand the extent to which those overarching excuses for what the government uh, is doing simply cover a variety of special interest measures. You talk a lot about the business climate, sort of just the business confidence Mm -hmm throughout the 1930s. What, what did that look like and what was, uh, in your view, sort of affecting business confidence? Well, uh, in the beginning, of course, the depression itself was the overwhelming factor. Uh, income and employment were falling very rapidly in the early 30s. And of course, uh, that was distressing to practically every kind of business. Uh, 
uh, the profits were falling for four years in a row in the early 30s. The net profits of all American corporations added up uh, were negative. So, so, of course, that's distressing to anybody in business. And many, many businesses, have, of course, just failed and went bankrupt. Uh, some were seized by tax collectors and so forth. But, uh, but when Roosevelt took over, a new kind of uncertainty began to develop. And that, that was because of these extraordinary government interventions that were being made. Uh, some important interventions were made during Hoover's presidency of, as well, but the, the scope of intervention expanded uh, a great deal once Roosevelt became president. And, and uh, in the beginning, he tried to buy in, as I indicated in talking about the NIRA, he tried to buy in all the big interests, the business interests, uh, the organized labor interests, uh, the farmers who were organized, and so forth. Uh, that's usually referred to as the first New Deal and pertains to the actions taken during 1933 and 34. Uh, from 1935 on, uh, the Roosevelt administration shifted course, uh, more or less gave up on uh, being friendly with government in general and investors in particular, uh, and began to enact legislation uh, that looked more like class warfare, uh, particularly tax laws, securities laws, banking laws, a variety of legislation that simply scared businessmen because we need to consider the context. Hitler's taken over the government of Germany. Mussolini's running Italy as a fascist dictatorship. Uh, perfectly civilized countries are, are going to hell in terms of dictatorship. And so a lot of business people in the United States feared very sincerely that the same thing was going to happen in the United States and that Roosevelt sought to make himself a dictator as much as Mussolini or Hitler uh, were dictators. Uh, and, and that fear was exacerbated by the nature of the New Deal actions, particularly in 1935, 6, 7, uh, and also exacerbated by the frequent changes of course. Uh, the New Deal went from trying to cartelize every business in the country for a couple of years to turning against business uh, uh, a few years later and mounting a jihad of antitrust action. Uh, well, what are you supposed to think if you're running a business? <laughs> What's the government going to do next? Are they going to tax us out of existence? Are they going to actually seize our property the way they seized all the monetary gold in the country? Uh, the, the businessmen were afraid that this government was capable of doing anything, and the president's rhetoric and his uh, wild claims about uh, economic royalists uh, and his wars against them. He actually spoke openly and with pride about how he was at war with these businessmen and investors. And uh, that had never happened before in American history. Uh, there had never been a president who, who went blatantly to war against investor and business interests in the same way that Roosevelt did. Now, remember, this is all laid on top of some businesses continuing to get special interest privileges from the government. Uh, 
So it, it's just a mess in terms of any particular businessman's being willing, being able to formulate secure expectations about what the future holds. And in the late 1930s, that uh, uncertainty, which I call regime uncertainty, uh, uncertainty about the status of private property rights in the future, be, became uh, quite extreme. And as a result, uh, long-term private investment never came close to recovering in the 1930s, back to the level it uh, had achieved in the 1920s. And uh, that was a major reason for the continued duration of the Great Depression and for the high rates of unemployment that persisted. Where are we now with respect to long-term private investment? Well, it still it still hasn't recovered. Private investment has been the weakest element of the recovery uh, since supposedly the recession ended in mid-2009. And of course, there has been recovery. A real gross domestic product is now higher than it was before the bust. Uh, Employment has not recovered fully. Uh, in fact, employment is four or five million persons in the private sector below where it was uh, be in, in 2007. So uh, there's been a lag of employment uh, and, and uh, as you say, a lag of uh, private investment, particularly the long-term type private investment, uh, which is the most important driver of real economic growth uh, by expanding the capital stock and by uh, implementing new technologies that are, that are more productive than the old ones. Uh, so it, it doesn't really create recovery if, for example, the government spends a lot of money because that's in one way or another, regardless of what it purports to be, that's wealth redistribution. Uh, whereas private investment is the means by which we become more productive in a real sense. Uh, our, our actual wealth and standard of living can, can rise as a result. But uh, we're still lagging there, and uh, I believe that a major reason, and, and I'm not alone in this belief, uh, many businessmen have voiced the same uh, view, as have some economists uh, eventually, uh, I, I'm of the view that regime uncertainty uh, is a serious problem now and is uh, one of the main reasons why the recovery has not already become complete at this point, including a recovery of private employment and, and of private long-term investment. Robert Higgs is a senior fellow in political economy at the Independent Institute and author of the classic Crisis and Leviathan. Read more about American uncertainty on the rule of law at our website, cato.org.